Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 17. Samara. Last time we discussed the early history of the Ohus and the formation of the Ohus Yabgu state. The Ohus ethnos, that is the Ohus as a people, really emerged after the Battle of Talas and the Anlushan Rebellion broke Tang power on the steppe, and tribes of Turks fled the chaos in the east to the west. In the lands north of the great Silk Road cities of Central Asia, along the river Sirdarya, and between the Caspian and Aral Seas, the Ohus really emerged as a people and built their state. As we discussed, the Ohus Yabgu state was established to the north of the Abbasid Caliphate, and it was the Abbasid Caliphate that constituted the sedentary civilization that the nomadic Ohus orientated towards. And it is to the Abbasid Caliphate that we will travel in this episode to discuss what was going on in the lands of Islam after the Abbasid Revolution and to discuss the important role of the Turks in this story. Now, the history of the Abbasid Caliphate is worthy of a podcast in its own right. I mean, this period, the 150 or so years following the Abbasid Revolution, is colloquially called the Golden Age of Islam. It was the age of the founding of Baghdad, the great Islamic advances in the sciences, mathematics, literature, history, the arts, and philosophy. And this wasn't just taking place in Baghdad, but in Central Asia, in the Silk Road cities that the Turgesh Khanate and the Umayyads had been viciously fighting over in the early 700s. Indeed, there is an excellent book I'd very highly recommend, called The Lost Enlightenment, that covers the stunning Central Asian scientific and philosophical advances made during this period. The Abbasid Caliphate, basically starting at the moment of its founding, was the superpower of its age. Militarily, culturally, philosophically, scientifically, and economically. From India to China to the steppes of Central Asia to Africa to Russia to the backwater that was Western Europe, the whole world wondered at the wealth, the brilliance, the refinement, and the might of this great caliphate. But like I've said before, this is not an Islamic history podcast. This is a Turkish history podcast. So we're going to stick to the role of the Turks in all of this, which was decidedly less refined. So with that said, let's begin. Now we last left off with the Abbasids in 751, having overthrown the Umayyads and defeated the Tang armies at Talas. After these great victories, Abbasid control of the central lands of Islam was basically assured. The Umayyads were done. They managed to hold on only in Spain and in the very, very western parts of North Africa, what today constitutes Morocco and western Algeria. These faraway lands were just too distant to be of great concern for the more eastern Abbasids. Indeed, they were almost mythical to the people living in Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Under the Abbasids, the center of the caliphate shifted east, religiously, culturally, economically, and militarily. The Umayyads had ruled from Damascus in Syria, formerly part of the Roman Empire. But the Abbasids hailed from Iraq, formerly the heartland of the old Sassanid Empire, and they had come to power with the aid of Persians, Turks, Sogdians, and the armies of Khorasan, Balkh, and Central Asia, led by Abu Muslim. They were therefore markedly more eastern. In 754, three years after Talas, the first Abbasid caliph, Abu al-Abbas al-Safah, died. He was succeeded by his brother, Al-Mansur, 
who would reign for nearly 25 years and really probably deserves to be called the first Abbasid Caliph. Now, one of the first things that al-Mansur did was to turn on Abu Muslim. The charismatic eastern commander had been critical to the rise of the Abbasids, and after the victory had been made governor of Khorasan. Abu Muslim had indeed placed the Abbasids on the throne, and that meant he was clearly far too powerful of a figure to be left alive, or at least left as governor of the eastern lands from which he had raised his mighty revolutionary army, and where support for his message ran deep. Al-Mansur first attempted to move Abu Muslim to Syria or Egypt, to at least get him away from his base of support, but this didn't work. And so in 755, Abu Muslim was summoned to a meeting in Iraq, the Abbasid homeland, to work out his differences with the caliph. The meeting began to get heated, and at a signal from al-Mansur, five men leaped out from behind a portico in the room the meeting was taking place in. Abu Muslim was seized and quickly stabbed to death. His body was then dumped in the Tigris. The murder of Abu Muslim might be the single biggest treachery committed by an employer in world history. When Abu Muslim had been sent east, the Abbasids were a bit player in the third fitna. Almost certainly, the conflict was going to result in some Umayyad prince seizing the throne. Even the Shia and the Kharijites were probably better placed than the Abbasids. I mean, who had ever even heard of these guys? It had been Abu Muslim who had taken over the revolutionary movement of Al-Harith and who had built the great revolutionary army, the men of the Black Raiments. It had been Abu Muslim who had conquered the East and delivered it to Abbasid rule. It had then been Abu Muslim who had ridden west and defeated the last Umayyad caliph, and then mere months later had ridden back east to defeat the great Tang invasion. In short, it was Abu Muslim who had put the Abbasids on the throne and then kept them there. And this was his reward, stabbed to death by the very people he had raised up from nothing within five years of his victory. What a way to go. So after very ungratefully doing in the man who had done more than anyone to establish his dynasty, al-Mansur then set out to really build the state. But despite doing away with Abu Muslim, al-Mansur knew how reliant he was on the people Abu Muslim had rallied to the cause, the men of the black raiments, the Easterners, the Khorasani Arabs, the Central Asians. These supporters were termed the Abna al-Dawla, or the Sons of the Revolution and they were critical to the Abbasids holding on to power. Al-Mansur was determined not to get on their bad side. So after doing away with their erstwhile leader Abu Muslim, he made sure to grant the sons of the revolution generous pensions and stipends, as well as plum jobs in good lands throughout the east, but primarily in Iraq, the homeland of the Abbasids, where they could also be kept an eye on. The western lands beyond Egypt were considered much lower down the totem pole to the eastern-focused Abbasids, than they had been to the more western-leaning Umayyads. And so the east continued to rise in importance within the caliphate. As the center of the empire continued to move east culturally, politically, and economically, Damascus made less and less sense as a capital. And so it was that on July 30, 762, al-Mansur assembled a great crowd on the Tigris River in Iraq, at a spot a mere 32 kilometers north of the old Persian capital of Tesaphon and 90 kilometers north of the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon. There he dedicated what would be a new city, which he called Madinat al-Salam, 
the city of peace. We know it today as Baghdad. Baghdad was largely built by Easterners, by builders and architects from Mervin Khorasan and under the direction of a Khorasani Arab architect and designer. Indeed, there are some interesting parallels between its layout and the layout of a certain Central Asian citadel and a famous Central Asian Buddhist monastery. And it would be here, in Baghdad, along with the great cities of Iran and Central Asia, that the Abbasid cultural flowering would take place. Now the glories of the Abbasid cultural flowering, the golden age of Islam, were likewise largely brought about by people from the eastern part of the Caliphate. And therefore, unsurprisingly, the culture and ideas and beliefs of these eastern peoples, most importantly the Persians, came to imbue Islamic civilization under the Abbasids. The Abbasid cultural flowering was in many ways the renaissance of Persian culture, but Persian culture combined with both the religion of Islam and the cultural heritage of the Romans and the Greeks that had been so loved by the more western-focused Umayyads. Indeed, under the Abbasids, the great texts of Roman and Greek antiquity would be translated into Arabic and Persian, and would thus survive the European Middle Ages to be rediscovered and translated back into Western languages during the European Renaissance. But the Abbasid scholars did far, far more than just act as a library, holding the great Western works until Europeans could rediscover them. Indeed, it's very, very annoying that this sort of racist trope is still widely believed and taught in the West. Rather, the Abbasid scholars took these Roman and Greek works and approached them with new eyes, eyes that had read the great works of Eastern thought, great works from China, India, Central Asia, and most importantly, Iran. And then they took all of this great cultural and intellectual heritage from the whole of Eurasia, and they just ran with it, making great leaps in the arts and sciences that would not be equaled for centuries really until the European Age of Enlightenment, which itself built off of the advances made here in Baghdad and in the cities of Central Asia under the Abbasids. Now, I'm not going to go through an exhaustive intellectual and scientific history of the advances made during this period. That is really not the focus of this podcast. But the fact that this period is so often taught as some sort of library, that all that matters is that the Abbasids kept the great works of the quote-unquote West safe, is one of my real pet peeves. It is so insulting to the people involved, and it is so based in such lazy and bigoted Orientalism, the idea that only Europeans really do sciences or philosophy or history. Indeed, that even on the preservation front, all that matters is that they preserve the so-called European works, not, for example, the Persian, Chinese, and Indian works that were also preserved by the Abbasids. And the label of European, by the way, makes absolutely no sense in this time the original Greek authors themselves would have understood themselves as having far more in common with the Persians than with the savages of far-off Gaul and Britannia, as they would have seen it. I mean, the way you would imagine it by reading Western popular histories of this period is just so insane that it almost makes no sense. The idea that the Abbasid scholars just translated these works into Arabic and Persian for, like, no reason at all, that they just translated them and then just waited around for someone else to do something with them, is clearly ridiculous. Obviously, they translated them so that they could use them. Obviously, they did more than just store these works. The advances made in this period are just truly astounding. From the development of the Hindu-Arabic numeral system used all over the world today, to the discovery of algebra and algorithms, which are both Arabic words, to the first solutions to linear and quadratic equations, to the invention of distillation and isolation of medicinal compounds, to the invention of cryptography, 
to vast advances in telescopes and the observation of the movements of celestial bodies that would later be relied upon to prove that the Earth rotated around the Sun and not vice versa, and just on and on and on. My personal favorite is that in order to properly calculate the Qibla, that is the direction of prayer towards Mecca, the technique of calculating a straight line over a curved surface based on the relative positions of celestial bodies was discovered. And it wasn't just the sciences. There were great philosophical and theological debates about the nature of reason, free will, epistemology, and so on. Great histories were written. Architecture, illustration, painting, music, poetry, and literature all flourished. Really, the Abbasid domains in this period were a place of scientific, philosophical, and artistic creation basically unsurpassed until the modern era. And unfortunately, it still doesn't really get its due. But like I said, this is a Turkish history podcast, so we're going to go back to the political history stuff, which is where the Turks really started to play a role. So aside from founding Baghdad and patronizing the start of this Age of Enlightenment, what else did Al-Mansur get up to? On the foreign policy front, his goal was to retake what had been lost during the instability of the Third Fitna. As the Umayyad state had collapsed, the various peoples bordering the caliphate had taken advantage of the chaos. He sent embassies to the Tang court to affirm that now the Chinese were out of Central Asia, there were no longer any problems between the two great empires. He even sent Arab troops to China to assist the Tang in putting down the Anlushan rebellion. In Byzantium, he launched devastating raids into Anatolia to punish the Byzantines for their encroachment on Arab lands during the Third Fitna. These raids would continue throughout the Abbasid period, and the Byzantines could do nothing but attempt to withstand them. In fact, the famous cave cities in Cappadocia in Turkey, one of the greatest tourist sites in a country full of great tourist sites, largely date from this period. As the Byzantine Christians found ways to hide from the Abbasid raids, they moved into ancient cave dwellings in the region, expanding them and beautifying them as they attempted to ride out the Abbasid storm. Far to the west, Al-Mansur attempted to invade Al-Andalus in faraway Spain to bring the rebel Umayyad Caliph to justice and bring the Abbasid revolution to its logical conclusion. But he failed, and the Umayyads were able to hang on in Al-Andalus. So that's foreign policy, but what about internal government administration? While Al-Mansur basically took over the existing governmental structures of the Umayyad Caliphate, pioneered all the way back during the reigns of Muawiyah and Abd al-Malik, and more or less kept them in place, though the Abbasid Caliphate was run with a little bit more decentralization. But there was one truly major change. Whereas before the doors of the Caliphate's administration had been kept shut to non-Arab Muslims, and even Arabs who were not born into the right clan or tribe, they were now thrown open to all. Persians, Sogdians, Indians, Armenians, Egyptians, Greeks, and Turks flowed into the state civil service. Which brings us to the Turks in the Abbasid Caliphate. Like I said at the top, I'm going to try to keep the focus of the story here on the Turks, not on all the other things that were happening in the Caliphate. So what was the role of the Turks in the Abbasid Caliphate? Of course, some of the poets, authors, and scientists were Turkish, or of partial Turkish heritage, but there weren't that many of them, and in any event, they exclusively wrote in Arabic and Persian, the two great languages of the elites of the Abbasid Caliphate, regardless of native ethnic origin. So there were some Turks participating in this elite culture, but they were a distinct minority in it, and in any event, they were participating in this culture on its terms, not as Turks. 
Instead, as we discussed at the end of the last episode, the real role of the Turks in the Abbasid Caliphate, the role that they were seemingly born to play, was that of soldier. Having come from the East, the sons of the revolution, the new elites of the Abbasid Caliphate, were from a world where the supremacy of the Turk as a soldier was unquestioned. In the East, great lords of all ethnicities employed Turkish troops. As the Easterners came to take over the new caliphate, they brought their belief about the supremacy of the Turk as a warrior with them to Baghdad. Now, we don't have a very clear idea of the role of Turks in the early Abbasid armies. No doubt there were large numbers of Turkish troops in the armies under al-Mansur. Even since before the toppling of the Umayyads, the Abbasid armies always had large contingents of mounted Turkish troops. And this continued in al-Mansur's reign. The medieval chronicler al-Makrizi says, Al-Mansur was the first caliph to have granted power to Turks within the state system. And we do see other evidence of incorporation of Turks into the state. We do have some indication from lists of names of government officials serving in Egypt that a number of officials likely had Turkish roots. Now, the surviving records are best for Egypt due to the long life of papyrus and the dry heat of the desert, but the first century or so of Abbasid rule was characterized by a lot of elite movement throughout the caliphate, governors and other officials being frequently cycled around the empire. So it's reasonable to assume that the data from Egypt is representative of the caliphate as a whole. But critically for our story, we do know for sure that it was under al-Mansur that the Turkish slave bodyguard of the caliph was formed. Composed of young Turkish warriors taken from Central Asia as slaves, either purchased or taken as plunder and raiding, these slave soldiers were organized into a personal guard to protect the caliph and his inner circle. This was the true beginning of Turkish slave soldiers in the world of Islam. Termed gulam, meaning servant, or mamaluk, meaning one who is owned, slave soldiers would go on to have a long history in the Islamic world. The practice really only came to a definitive end in the last years of the 18th century, when Napoleon finally overthrew the Mamelukes of Egypt. As slaves, the Turkish guard theoretically had no loyalty to anyone but their master, the caliph. Likely, the Turks themselves would have seen their slave status as analogous to the status of high-ranking soldiers serving a powerful Khan or a Sogdian prince. And as Turks, they were seen by the Abbasids as the epitome of martial prowess, the super-soldiers of the day. They were usually taken from the steppe young, but not so young that they had not yet learned to ride or fight in the steppe way. Remember, steppe youth learned to ride basically as soon as they could walk, and they started practicing with the bow and arrow as young children. By the time they came into their teenage years, they were already accomplished riders and archers and may have already had a taste for war and raiding. Now, throughout the first 50-odd years of Abbasid history, from about 750 to 800, the references in the sources to the Turkish slave soldiers are relatively rare. This is probably because this was a period, in general, of peace and prosperity in the Abbasid domains. Abbasid control was relatively loose and allowed for a large degree of local autonomy. In general, the armies of the Abbasid military came from the areas in which they served, meaning that aside from the relatively small slave bodyguard of the caliph, most Turkish soldiers would have been serving in the east, under the control of the eastern governors and commanders. 
Large armies bounding across the caliphate to keep the state together weren't really required, and most of the outward wars were relatively low scale. The great days of conquest under the height of the Umayyads, when whole kingdoms were subjugated to the armies of Islam, were in the past. Instead, war with outside powers was, in essence, largely confined to large-scale raiding. Armies raiding across the river into Central Asia, deep into Byzantine Anatolia, into the heat of the Indian subcontinent, and into the frigid cold of the Russian steppes. But that said, the invasions of non-Muslim territory, in particular Byzantine territory, were about more than just carting off treasure. They were deeply connected to legitimizing the state. By waging war against the infidel, the Abbasids were picking up the banner of jihad, and by positioning themselves as the prosecutors of jihad, they were reinforcing their right to rule. But almost always, the armies returned home. They did not seek to topple the kingdoms they encountered. The jihad evolved from wars of subjugation to wars of pillage, a way to legitimize the state, but without actually seeking to bring new lands into the empire of faith. Now this was still horrible for the people who had to endure this. We have a lot of references in the Byzantine sources to the horror of Abbasid raids, and the number of troops put in the field were astounding to the people that they encountered. But internally, compared to the vast scale of the Abbasid domains, this didn't really require huge armies. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence that up until the early years of the 9th century, the Abbasid armies were in fact progressively dwindling in size. The state was so supremely powerful, by far the largest, wealthiest, and most powerful state in the world, that it really faced no existential threat from the outside. As such, maintaining large armies was somewhat superfluous, and perhaps even dangerous. Who knew? Perhaps a large army might march on Baghdad itself. But that started to change in the year 809. So what happened in 809? Well, that was the year that Harun al-Rashid, the caliph of the famous Thousand and One Nights, died. See, after al-Mansur's death in 775, a series of relatively weak caliphs had succeeded the great man. These included Harun al-Rashid, who came to the throne in 786. It was under his reign that the Abbasid Caliphate reached the zenith of its wealth and prosperity. But while Harun al-Rashid presided over a golden age, and while his name has become world-famous due to the Thousand and One Nights and the glories of Baghdad during this time, he was in reality a fairly unremarkable ruler. He probably wasn't the most attentive leader in history. Arab rebellions began to spring up in Egypt and Syria, the home base of the Umayyads, largely due to arbitrary administration, high taxation, and in some places lingering pro-Umayyad sympathies. Now these were put down, of course, and despite definitely being overrated in the best caliphs of all time rankings, the fact remains that Harun al-Rashid presided over a golden age, and a largely peaceful one at that. The coming troubles would make sure that it would be remembered all the more fondly. Upon Harun al-Rashid's death in 809, a struggle for power immediately broke out. See, as Harun al-Rashid approached the end of his life, he had two sons who were widely considered to be the best candidates as successor. The one who Harun al-Rashid wanted to hand power to over was named al-Amin, and he had a purely Abbasid lineage. 
His mother was an Abbasid as well. The other candidate was Al-Amin's elder half-brother named Al-Mamun, the product of Harun al-Rashid and a Persian concubine. Al-Mamun was widely respected and a highly intelligent man, and of course, he was supported by most of the Persian elites of the Caliphate in Iran and the East. Naturally, the two brothers hated each other. According to most Muslim histories, including the history of al-Tabari, Harun al-Rashid appointed al-Amin as his primary heir, but also appointed al-Mamun to be something of a secondary heir in case al-Amin died. And he then appointed al-Mamun to the powerful governorship of Khorasan in the east, the homeland of the Abbasid Revolution, and a land full of Iranic peoples who liked seeing a partially Persian man as the governor. Supposedly, all of this was governed by a very intricate and specific agreement between Harun al-Rashid and his two sons. Now, most modern historians doubt this, and think that as most of these histories were written by pro-Al-Mamun authors, they basically either made up or exaggerated this complicated two-way succession thing as a way to justify Al-Mamun's role in the coming civil war between the two men. And I have to say I find that very persuasive. Harun al-Rashid might be a little bit overrated, but the man was not an idiot, and he would have very clearly seen that giving each of the two brothers who hated each other a claim would be a recipe for instant civil war. That said, it might also have been that Harun al-Rashid was just in fact trying to find a solution that didn't involve killing one of his sons, both of whom he loved, and that was where this whole complicated arrangement came from. We really can't know, but we should treat the claims of the surviving Islamic histories with a heaping tablespoon of salt. Regardless, upon Harun al-Rashid's death in 809, the probably inevitable civil war started more or less instantly. Al-Mamun removed Al-Amin's name from coins minted in the East and from the name of the Friday prayers, the reading of Friday prayers in the name of the ruler being one of the key markers of sovereignty in the Muslim world. In response, Al-Amin removed Al-Mamun from the succession, whereupon Al-Mamun gathered up his forces in Khorasan and marched west. Now, in order to get his hands on the requisite troops from the east, Al-Mamun had to make an alliance with the military commander of the east, a man named Tahir. Tahir agreed, but the arrangement from the beginning was very tense. Al-Mamun knew that it was Tahir who commanded the troops, and Tahir knew that Al-Mamun's legitimacy as a member of the Abbasid line would be invaluable in seizing power. Tahir's troops, unsurprisingly for an eastern military commander, were largely Turkish. And just as had happened 60 years earlier when Abu Muslim led the eastern armies to the center of the caliphate, Al-Mamun's eastern troops were victorious. There were simply no equals to Turkish steppe warriors. The relatively small Arab armies that Al-Amin could raise probably never stood a chance. By 813, Al-Mamun had won. Baghdad was besieged and conquered, and Al-Amin was executed. But as Al-Mamun surveyed the political landscape after his victory, he became concerned. He saw potential rivals, potential enemies everywhere. In particular, the commander of the troops of the east, Tahir, had been absolutely critical to his victory. Al-Mamun, after taking the throne in Baghdad, had been forced to appoint Tahir as governor of Khorasan. Essentially, Tahir and his family were made lords of the east, and made essentially a dynasty in their own right. As we will come to see in the future, 
this would have devastating consequences. In essence, this dynasty, the Tahirids, became something like viceroys, almost kings, although they would use the title emir, meaning commander. Though they ruled in the name of the caliph, they would eventually come to be very much the actual rulers of the east. But for now, having just staged a very successful invasion from the east, Al-Mamun knew just how dangerous the largely Turkish eastern armies were. Furthermore, a large component of Tahirid Turkish troops had stayed on in Baghdad when their leader returned to the east. Tahir insisted, of course, that this was just to make sure that everything went according to plan and his troops were there to support the rightful caliph al-Mamun. Nothing nefarious at all, you see. I'm just looking out for your best interests, my lord caliph. It's not a bother at all for me to keep my troops in Baghdad to make sure you're safe and secure. Really, I insist. But obviously, you don't have to be paranoid to believe that these eastern troops would obey their commander and not this Abbasid caliph that they had installed on the throne on Tahir's orders. In a sense, Tahir was holding a knife next to Al-Mamun's throat from thousands of miles away. And so, Al-Mamun looked around for a way to balance the power of the Turkish troops from the east in his capital and this powerful eastern emir. And he quickly identified the caliph's Turkish slave bodyguard as the critical institution. Here was steppe power, the vaunted Turkish steppe soldiers, but in service of the caliph, not in the service of this eastern governor. So Al-Mamun began to actively recruit his own Turkish army, to expand the caliph's personal Turkish slave bodyguard into something more than just a household force. And just like the old Roman Praetorian Guard and the Persian Immortals, or the coming Byzantine Varangian Guard or the Ottoman Janissaries, the expanded Turkish slave bodyguard of the caliph would come to be more than just a military force. It would come to be a political force. Now, it's not entirely clear what percentage of the Turkish soldiers brought to Baghdad during the reign of al-Mamun were enslaved and what percentage were recruited. But I think it's very likely that the Turks at this time did not really see a meaningful difference between the two concepts. They had extensive experience being recruited by Sogdian princes and Iranian lords to serve as personal bodyguards. In the east, the Turkish reputation for military prowess was unmatched. In such a position, they would have been high-ranking servants, whether formally considered free or enslaved by the legal system of the day, a legal system that they likely had limited understanding of in any event. The concept of being a servant to a lord was probably more understood as the idea of loyalty to the person of the Lord, and not as some sort of legal status in a legal system. And crucially for our story, in the eyes of the Turks, it came with obligations towards the servant as well, namely the obligation to provide plunder and gold to the soldier, which we have seen pop up over and over again on this podcast. Now initially, this idea of Al-Mamun's worked. With his expanded Turkish bodyguard acting as a balance to the Turkish soldiers loyal to Tahir, Al-Mamun was able to stay on the throne and see off any potential challenges with his new Turkish military. But the strength of Tahir and his importance to the regime was such that upon Tahir's death in 822, Al-Mamun had no choice but to appoint his son as governor of Khorasan. And so the fundamental political problem that led Al-Mamun to raise his own Turkish army remained. There was a powerful local dynasty in the east that had to be kept in check. 
Al-Mamun himself ended up dying near the city of Adana in modern-day Turkey of natural causes in 833 after 20 years on the throne. He died young, only 46 years old. According to some sources, the cause of death was food poisoning after eating some bad dates. He was succeeded by his younger brother and ally Al-Mutasim, and it was under Al-Mutasim that the system of the Turkish slave-soldier would really come into its own. Al-Mutasim took the system that his brother began and really just ran with it. And he did this for basically the same continuing internal political reason. Like his brother, he did not trust the Turkish troops in the capital who owed their loyalty to the Tahirids. Under Al-Mutasim, the Turkish bodyguard of the caliph increased to approximately 20,000 men at the very least. A veritable army. Additionally, Al-Mutasim brought in Iranian soldiers from Central Asia and Berber troops from the Sahara Desert, another famed martial people. But these were always far, far outnumbered by the Turks. Al-Mutasim also began to purchase not just fighting-age young men from the steppes, but Turkish slave women. He brought these slave women to Iraq and married them to his Turkish troops, in essence attempting to breed a population of Turkish slave soldiers. Now this is a bit interesting, both because it's totally insane, and because obviously the children of such unions would not really have been raised in the steppe lifestyle. They would not have been raised in the saddle, and therefore would not necessarily have the same attributes as the Turks of the steppe. Clearly Al-Mutasim believed that there was something genetic or inherent to the Turks that made them such good soldiers. But while we know very little about the training of these children, presumably they were also trained to be soldiers from birth. It was also under Al-Mutasim that the caliph's Turkish bodyguard became basically an entirely enslaved force. In the early years of the Abbasid Caliphate, it's not really clear what percentage of the bodyguard troops were slaves versus hired soldiers, but under Al-Mutasim, the force became essentially totally slaves. Now again, it's not clear how this was necessarily understood by the Turks, who may not have cared at all about the legal categorization of their servitude, and likely just saw this as a form of loyalty to their lord, the caliph. Especially because, although they were slaves, the Turkish slave soldiers were incredibly high-status individuals. As the force designed to be the spine of the caliph's support, the people keeping him on the throne, the caliph made sure to take care of them very well. He even granted titles of nobility to some commanders, titles typically borne by Sogdian princes, titles that would have seemed very, very grand to the people of the steppe. As the ranks of his slave army swelled, Al-Mutasim realized that they were too numerous to be kept in Baghdad. For one thing, they were annoying all of the Abbasid elites. The civilized and cultured Arabs and Persians living in the magnificent palaces and participating in the great golden age of Islam did not like having crude Turkish warriors around. See, the Turks would just sort of ride around everywhere and get drunk and fight with each other. You know, in the introduction episode to this podcast, I read a quote by the Abbasid poet Ibn Lankak al-Basri. He wrote, The free are gone, they are destroyed and lost. Time has placed me among the barbarians. I am told you spend too much time at home, and I answer, it is no longer enjoyable to walk around the streets, for whom do I meet when I look around? Monkeys on horseback. That was written at this time about the Turks in Baghdad. Al-Tabari reports that the Turks would race each other and gallop through the city, running into and even killing men, women, and children. Additionally, as products of the steppe world, where there was a greater degree of sexual equality, 
and the sexes tend to more or less mingle freely and socialize, the Turks had far freer sexual mores than the more prim and proper population of Baghdad. Arabs and Persians alike were scandalized by the Turks essentially walking up to women and hitting on them in public. Both al-Tabari and al-Masudi report increasingly frequent incidents between the population of the city and the large number of new Turkish troops. More importantly, conflicts and tensions were beginning to arise between the caliph's Turkish slave soldiers and the Turkish troops of the Tahirids, those soldiers loyal to the eastern governors but kept in Baghdad to keep an eye on things for their master in the east. Al-Tabari in particular reports a series of violent incidents between the two groups of Turkish soldiers, the servants of the caliph and the servants of the Tahirid eastern governor. Al-Mutasim was worried that this had the potential to become a tinderbox. One fight between his slave bodyguard and the eastern Turkish troops gets out of hand, and the next thing you know, he's fighting a civil war. And so, in 836, Al-Mutasim ordered the construction of a new city to house his brand new Turkish army. It was built about 125 kilometers north of Baghdad on the banks of the river Tigris, and it was named Samara. Within a couple of years, Samara was constructed with the astonishing speed only capable of an empire as rich and powerful as the Abbasid Caliphate, though at a great strain to the state's budget. It was a collection of lavish palaces, grand mosques, and of course garrisons, to house the caliph's Turkish slave soldiers. Incidentally, the Grand Mosque of Samara is renowned for its magnificent spiral minaret, one of the timeless glories of Islamic architecture. When the city was completed, Al-Mutasim moved his royal court to Samara, where he would be safe behind its walls, guarded by his massive Turkish slave army. This would be the new capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. Now the creation of this great slave army and the construction of a new capital were not cheap. By the end of Al-Mutasim's reign, the Turkish slave army was by far the largest line item on the state's budget. Modern historians estimate that perhaps 50% or more of the state's budget went to the army. In addition to the cost of purchasing the slaves and training them, provisioning them, housing them, and paying them, the state also began to grant high-ranking commanders the right to collect the Kharaj land tax from a certain area, a forerunner of the ikta financial system and administrative system that will really come into its own under the Seljuks. These grants naturally decrease the state's revenue and they would give the high-ranking Turkish commanders a source of income separate from the caliph. And this was all happening at the same time that the revenues of the state seemed to have been decreasing. We can't be sure of the reasons, but it seems like the Abbasid state revenues peaked roughly in the year 800 and then began to slowly decline. Modern historians estimate that by the 860s, state revenues had fallen by almost 20% from their peak in the early 800s. The most likely culprits are climatic shifts, and disruption of the extremely complicated and millennia-old irrigation system in the Iraqi heartland, which led to lower agricultural yields beginning in the early 9th century. Now at the same time that the Turkish slave army became more and more expensive for the state, the move to Samara also resulted in the further political rise of the most powerful slave commanders. This is completely unsurprising. As the caliph and his court moved to Samara, Surrounded by his personal army of tens of thousands of Turkish slaves, 
it was inevitable that the Turks would begin to take over some of the administration of the state and get some of the key jobs. And in fact, this was merely an extension of the policy that had begun all the way back at the beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate. The doors of the state service being opened up to talented non-Arabs, including Turks. Some of these jobs were regional appointments. Turkish commanders set off to govern various provinces and districts, and some were to the central government in Samarra. And as the stay in Samarra went on, more and more the government of the caliphate came to be run by Turkish commanders, and thus the guard became an increasingly political institution. Some of these commanders, such as the famous Ashnas, who's a great case study, would rise to become essentially vice-regents of the state. Now, like I said, Ashinas is just a great example, so I'm going to give you a brief overview of the type of person who rose up in the ranks here. Ashinas was purchased as a slave in Central Asia early in the reign of Al-Mutasim. Probably, though not certainly, his name indicates that he was a member of the old Ashina clan, the founders of the first Göktürk Khanate hundreds of years earlier. Ashinas rose through the ranks to become a leading general of the Caliph's slave army. He then served as the commander on major campaigns, including as the key leader of the great campaign that famously sacked and razed to the ground the Byzantine city of Amorium near modern-day Afyon Karahisar in Turkey. He then stopped a conspiracy to assassinate al-Mutasim and went on to serve as the governor of Egypt. But Ashinas is just an example. He was not the only Turk to rise to high ranks after the move of the court to Samarra. Others included the famous Itakh, who served as basically the chief of staff of the Abbasid armies, and Bukha the Elder, who served as a top field general, as well as a host of other less famous Turks serving in lower positions. So throughout the 830s and the 840s, the leading commanders of the Turkish slave army accumulated both administrative posts, far beyond being merely soldiers or bodyguards, and separate sources of revenue. And that's on top of the army as a whole just gobbling up at least half of the state's budget. And all of this together, maybe, just maybe, would result in them developing a dangerous independence from the caliph that they were meant to serve. Maybe. Now, throughout the reign of al-Mutasim, the caliph was generally able to control the situation. He had pioneered the system, after all, and was deeply respected by the traditional Abbasid elites and by the Turkish slave soldiers. But after al-Mutasim's death in 842, he was succeeded by his son Al-Watik. Now, Al-Watik was a reserved caliph, for lack of a better word, more interested in science, philosophy, poetry, and wine than war and government. And so more and more power devolved from him to the officers of the state. And that suited the administration that had grown up around the caliph's court in Samarra just fine. Therefore, under Al-Watik, the influence and power of the Turkish slave generals continued to grow. Ashinas, for example, reached the pinnacle of his influence and power under al-Watik. The Turkish slave soldiers also proved themselves over and over again on the field of battle, and the Abbasid Caliphate reached the zenith of its power, if not of its prosperity. The slave army ruthlessly put down nascent rebellions against the Caliph and launched invasions of Byzantine Anatolia that reached as far as the Bosphorus itself. No rebellion to the Caliph in Samarra was brooked, and from the Byzantine borders to India to the steppes of Central Asia to Africa, the might and power of the Abbasid Caliphate was unquestioned and unchallenged, all while the Caliph spent his days drinking wine, 
reading poetry, and debating the finer points of science and philosophy. But then Al-Watiq died unexpectedly in 847 from an edema, probably the result of an excessive consumption of alcohol. He was likely only 34 years old. Given his youth and his lack of involvement in the real affairs of state, he had not really given any thought to who should succeed him. Therefore, a power vacuum formed on the young caliph's death. And it was here that the Turkish slave soldiers really began to push their political might around. See, the state administration in Samara, in particular the most powerful of the Turkish slave generals, had become incredibly powerful, particularly during the five years of Al-Watiq's reign. And naturally, they did not want to give this up. So an ad hoc council was assembled upon the death of the young caliph. The council was headed by the grand vizier, a Persian named Muhammad ibn al-Zayat. The Qadi, or chief Islamic judge and scholar, the word in Turkish is Qadi, named Ahmad ibn Abi Dawad, an Arab, and the two most powerful Turkish generals, Itakh and Wasif al-Turki. The third of the great Turkish generals, Buga the Elder, was not on the council, in all likelihood because he was not in Samara but was instead on campaign, leading the armies and either putting down a revolt in Armenia or in Arabia. And I think that the composition of this council is sort of telling. It's sort of representative of the ethnic division of the state during this period. The cultivated, educated Persian as Grand Vizier, in charge of the civil administration of the state. The learned Arab scholar of religion, in charge of the religious administration and the judiciary. And the Turkish slave soldiers, in charge of the military. Though it's a bit of a simplification, it's a rough approximation of how the state worked. At least up until the Turkish slave soldiers would come to take over the whole thing. So this council got together and they decided, hey, we have to find someone who we can easily manipulate. I mean, who we can properly guide, just like the late Al-Watiq. No one wanted some interventionist caliph with crazy ideas about actually running the government himself. Eventually, they settled on a guy called Al-Mutawakil, the brother of Al-Watiq. Now, Al-Mutawakil had a reputation for dressing effeminately and for being a bit of a pushover. In fact, the Grand Vizier Ibn al-Zayat had humiliated him in public a handful of times during al-Watiq's reign. You kind of get the sense reading through the sources that the rough Turkish military men from the steppe and the hard-nosed Persian and Arab courtiers sort of saw al-Mutawakil as a dandy, a weak and effeminate guy that they could just walk all over. They would turn out to be sorely, sorely mistaken in believing that his dandiness or his effeminacy made him weak, because once he became caliph, al-Mutawakil was revealed to be anything but a pushover. He was in fact a shrewd operator who was utterly ruthless, and he was determined to reign in this apparatus of officials and slave generals that had grown up in Samara and had in effect taken over the state. The first thing that he did was go after Ibn al-Zayat, that Persian grand vizier who had humiliated him in the past. He got the Turkish slave general Itak to arrest him and then torture him to death, revenge for his prior humiliation. This naturally increased the power of Itak, who consolidated all of the key offices of state unto himself, a first for a Turkish slave general, until al-Mutawakil double-crossed him and had him arrested and thrown in prison to die of thirst. With his enemies thus cowed and the caliph's power reasserted, 
Al-Mutawakil would go on to reign for 14 years, presiding over the very end of the Abbasid Golden Age, though he did rule with a streak of cruelty that brooked no opposition and persecuted minority religions and sects, such as Christians, Jews, and the Shia. But despite doing in two of the leading members of the council that had appointed him and reasserting the power of the caliph over the state, Al-Mutawakil was not able to really challenge the power of the Turkish slave army. Indeed, under his reign, he came to increasingly rely on them. He needed them, both to take out his internal enemies like his old Persian Grand Vizier and other statesmen he didn't like, and on the battlefield, to crush rebellions of the Shia and others who opposed his heavy-handed rule, and to invade Byzantine territory at the head of the Abbasid armies. In particular, the Turkish slave soldiers proved their worth in brutally crushing a revolt against the caliph in Armenia in 852. Under al-Mutawakil's reign, more and more posts went to the Turks, including posts that had traditionally gone to Persians or Arabs, such as the post of chief secretary to the caliph. In 850, three years into his reign, he appointed the Turkish slave army's favorite of his sons, al-Muntasir II to serve as his chosen successor. But al-Mutawakil was not stupid. He knew that these Turkish slave soldiers were just as much of a potential threat as they were a useful tool. And additionally, they were incredibly expensive, consuming a huge portion of the state's budget, a state budget that was increasingly shrinking. So as his hold on power was finally secured, and as he himself entered middle age, Al-Mutawakil decided that something had to be done to rein in his Turkish slave army. By the late 850s, he had shifted his support from his son Al-Muntasir II, who was the favorite of the Turkish slave army, to another one of his sons, Al-Mutaz, who was favored by the religious establishment and the civil administration. Now this was really not appreciated by the Turkish troops at all, and they began to become worried. In 858, Al-Mutawakil took a huge trip to Damascus and seems to have been scouting out the old Umayyad capital as a potential alternative to Samarra, which was distressingly full of these Turkish slave soldiers. Then the Turks got word that Al-Mutawakil had begun asking his civil administration just how much the Turkish slave army was costing the state and how they could reduce the astronomical expenses of the army. Now was a time of belt tightening after all what with the state revenues falling year after year, and maybe cutting the expenses of this huge and dangerous slave army was a good place to start. And so the Turkish slave soldiers became even more worried. Thoroughly spooked, some of the Turkish generals began to get together to discuss what could be done here. The germ of a conspiracy formed, led by Wasif al-Turki and likely including Buga the Elder. I mean, they were the ones with the swords and the bows. They were the one with the soldiers. Couldn't they potentially find a permanent solution to this al-Mutawakil problem? Things came to a head in 861, when with the same sort of cunning with which he had finished off his enemies earlier in his reign, al-Mutawakil began to move against the senior Turkish slave leadership. Perhaps he had heard of the beginnings of the plot against him, but we can't be sure. In October 861, al-Mutawakil ordered that the estates of the great Turkish general Wasif al-Turki be seized. Wasif was one of the most powerful Turkish generals and a key member of the conspiracy, 
and remember that he had also been on the council that had appointed al-Mutawakil 14 years earlier. Then, in December 861, al-Mutawakil had his son al-Mutaz deliver the Ramazan prayers, a sign that he was going to officially replace al-Muntasir II as heir apparent. Al-Mutawakil then ordered that his chamberlain, who was actually himself a Turk, slap al-Muntasir II in the face publicly. And this, of course, drove al-Muntasir II into the arms of the conspiracy, and he had always had close ties with the Turkish troops. Finally, a rumor began circulating among the Turkish slave soldiers that on December 12th, the caliph was going to have many of the high-ranking Turkish slave generals executed, including Wasif al-Turki and Musa ibn Buga, the son of the great general Buga the Elder, who was then serving on the Byzantine frontier. Fear spread throughout the slave army that this was clearly a prelude to having the army hamstrung, perhaps even having it done away with entirely. The conspirators, led by Wasif and Musa ibn Buga, decided that they could not afford to wait any longer. The caliph had to go. It was him or them. And so, on the night of the 10th of December, 861, a group of Turkish slave soldiers broke into the private rooms of al-Mutawakil. The caliph was sitting having dinner with his Turkish chamberlain. The Turkish slave soldiers fell upon both men in a fury, stabbing them to death. For the first time since the death of Ali ibn Abu Talib, the Lion of God, the son-in-law of the messenger himself, a caliph had been assassinated. Now the Turkish slave soldiers who killed al-Mutawakil did this in desperation. They likely hoped that this would be a one-off and they could prop up a compliant caliph and everything could go back to normal. But it was not to be. The death of al-Mutawakil instead kicked off a decade of violence and political upheaval that historians call the Anarchy at Samarra. For a decade, the Abbasid Caliphate would fall into a period of military and political crisis. And though it survived, the Caliphate was fundamentally transformed. The Caliphate that emerged from the Anarchy was far, far different than the Caliphate that entered into it. Indeed, you can argue that the very institution of the Caliphate, as it had existed ever since the death of Muhammad himself, ended in a sense with the death of al-Mutawakil, because never again would there be a caliph with unquestioned political and religious authority, a commander of the faithful, leading a politically united Muslim world. And so next time, we will begin to chart the course of the coming anarchy, as the Abbasid Caliphate is brought to the very edge of destruction.